The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. And this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use First John 1 9 if necessary, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this privilege and opportunity we have today to study your word. Thank you for this nation that gives us this freedom. Thank you for those who have served their nation so honorably, those who have gone before, those who have given their lives, that we might have this freedom. Father, we pray that we might not take this freedom lightly, but we might realize that in each and every generation, this freedom must be fought for and this freedom must be earned and that freedom only comes as a result of military victory. Father, we pray that as believers we would realize that true freedom begins in the soul. True freedom begins because of what took place on the cross when Jesus Christ died as our substitute, and that he provided us with eternal life, but he has provided us with much more than that in the spiritual life that we have today. We pray that as we study your word, we might be challenged and encouraged to advance in our spiritual life, that we might not take for granted his death on the cross, for that is the greatest memorial that we have as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, to remember what he has done in paying the price of our salvation. Father, we pray that as we study your word today, we might be challenged by it, understanding these things As the Holy Spirit teaches us, we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On this Memorial Day, 2002, as a nation, we face something that we have never faced before, and that is the problem and crisis of this unique war on terrorism. I think it's important for us always to reflect upon what we have in this nation and as believers in this nation because of the foundation that we have been provided, both in terms of 
of our Christian heritage, but also the history of this nation. And uh, the, the fact that freedom is not something that we should take for granted. It's not something that we should uh, forget about, that this is something unique. No, no other time in history has any people known the kind of freedom, the, the level of, uh, of uh, the ability to succeed, the ability to prosper as the people in this nation have. This holiday Memorial Day is specifically designed as a day of remembrance of those who have given their life for us to be free. It was originally called Decoration Day, and there are many stories concerning its actual beginnings, with over two dozen cities and towns laying claim to being the birthplace of Memorial Day. There is evidence that organized women's groups in the South were decorating graves before the end of the Civil War. In fact, a hymn published in 1867 called Kneel Where Our Loves Are Sleeping by Nella L. Sweet carried the dedication to the ladies of the South who are decorating the graves of the Confederate dead. Local springtime tributes to Civil War dead already had been held in various places, and one of the first occurred in Columbus, Mississippi on April 25, 1866, when a group of women visited a cemetery to decorate the graves of Confederate soldiers who had fallen in battle at Shiloh. That's Pittsburgh Landing to those of you who are from the south. Nearby were the graves of Union soldiers neglected because they were the enemy. Disturbed at the sight of bare graves, the women placed some of their flowers on those graves as well. Today, cities in the north and the south claim to be the birthplace of Memorial Day. Both Macon and Columbus, Georgia claimed the title, as well as Richmond, Virginia. The village of Bowlesburg, Pennsylvania claims it began there two years earlier. A stone in Carbondale, Illinois Cemetery carries the statement that the first Decoration Day ceremony took place there on April 29, 1866. Carbondale was the wartime home of General Logan, General John Logan, who was the national commander of the Grand Army of the Republic. That was a, uh, an organization of uh, Union veterans, and it was General John Logan who uh, set forth the General Order Number 11, which established 30th, the 30th of May, 1868, as a day to place flowers on the graves of Union and Confederate soldiers at Arlington National Cemetery. As was typical in those days, the South refused to acknowledge the day, honoring their dead on separate days until after World War I, when the holiday changed from honoring just those who died fighting in the Civil War to honoring Americans who died fighting in any war. It is now celebrated in almost every state on the last Monday in May, and this, was, this law was passed by Congress in 1968. Many southern states also have their own days for honoring the Confederate dead. Mississippi celebrates Confederate Memorial Day the last Monday of April, Alabama on the fourth Monday of April, and Georgia on April 26th. North and South Carolina observe it May 10th, and on June 3rd, which was Jeff Jefferson Davis's birthday, Louisiana and Tennessee call that day Confederate Decoration Day. Texas celebrates Confederate Heroes Day on January 19th, and Virginia calls the last Monday in May Confederate Memorial Day. In 1915, uh, Moyna Michael, 
inspired by the poem in Flanders Field, wrote her own poem. She wrote, We cherish, too, the poppy red that grows on fields where valor led. It seems to signal to the skies that blood of heroes never dies. She then conceived of an idea to wear red poppies on Memorial Day in honor of those who died serving the nation during the war. She was the first to wear one and sold poppies to her friends and co-workers uh, with the money going to benefit servicemen in need. Later, a Madame Guerin from France was visiting the United States and learned of this new custom started by Mrs. Michael. And when she returned to France, made artificial red poppies to raise money for the war orphaned children and widowed women. That tradition spread to other countries, and in 1948, the United States Post Office uh, honored her for her role in founding the National Poppy Movement by issuing a red three-cent postage stamp. So Memorial Day is a time for us to remember, a time for us to focus on our heritage and on those who have served, not only served in the military, but have given the ultimate sacrifice that we might have the freedom to gather today and study God's Word. Open your Bibles with me to 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3, and we continue our study of uh, a, pas- a, a passage, a section of 1 John that is often misunderstood and often poorly interpreted. Last time we covered the section down through 15. Today we begin in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16. I think it's somewhat appropriate that this passage, 1 John 3, 16 and 17, is a passage that reflects the basic uh, idea underlying Memorial Day. John chapter 15, our Lord said, Greater love has no man than he who gives his life for his brother. This is the principle of impersonal love or unconditional love as expressed in the New Commandment, John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, and is really the background for understanding the entire section starting or beginning in 1 John 3.10 and extending down through 1 John 4.4. This is basically John's commentary and explanation of the New Commandment as expressed by Jesus in the Upper Room Discourse. Verse 16 begins by this We know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Now, we probably won't get past verse 16 today, so we'll just focus there. The passage begins, or the verse begins with the statement, we know love by this. Actually, in the Greek, we have a different word order. That's one of the uh, wonderful things about Greek, being an inflected language. That means each uh, part of speech has its own uh, endings, and you can mix the words around and jumble them around into different word order in order to uh, for, for various emphasis. In the Greek, it reads, by this. The emphasis is on that first phrase, by this. We know love. Now, the verb here is the perfect active indicative of gnosko, which means to come to know something. The perfect tense depicts as something different in, in Greek than it is in English. In Greek, the perfect tense emphasizes completed action. 
emphasizes something that has happened in the past, and the emphasis is either on the fact that it's completed or on the present results of that past action. In this case, the emphasis is on the continuing results of that past action, so that makes it an intensive perfect. And the emphasis that John is making is that we know something now as a result of what we learned in the past. It is a first-person plural, which means that we have a subject, we. Now, as I have stated again and again, as we've gone through this epistle, the we here reflects the... Have I not turned the screen on? Let me turn it on. The we here... Take a minute to warm up. The we here refers to the body of the apostles. It doesn't, if John is not using an epistolary we, we where he's talking about his audience as a we, like I may stand up here talking to about Preston City Bible Church and I may say something about the fact that, that we're planning to, uh, have a picnic later this summer and, and we'll all be there, which is just kind of a general we, hoping that it includes everybody. That's not the kind of we that he's using here. He is using a a we that from the very beginning refers specifically to that group of apostles that were eyewitnesses of Jesus' life and his ministry. He never indicates that there is a shift in terms of who that we refers to. Now, that's very important to understand something. When you're reading any piece of literature and pronouns are used, it's vital to make sure you understand who those pronouns are, to whom those pronouns refer, so that you can avoid misinterpretation. One of the reasons you get into a lot of problems in understanding First John is that people want the we to be an inclusive we, as if John is talking about we believers. But he's not talking about we believers. He is talking about we apostles. He is teaching the congregation about impersonal love, and he can't be sure that they've understood this yet. But he is stating that we, the apostles, came to know love by this. We came to understand what love is. It's an active voice because he's emphasizing the fact that, that they, the, that is the apostles, had to, uh, had to learn this. They had to study. They had to think. They had to uh, witness the life and ministry and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ in order to come to the point of learning something, and that is what real love is. Love is the is expressed in the accusative case here, which means it is the object of that knowledge. It's a very simple statement at the beginning. By this, we know love. The emphasis in this original is on the by this which draws our attention to the fact that there is only one way that you and I can come to understand what love is. Now, that runs counter to almost any kind of thinking that you will run across today. Most people think that they have some sort of inherent or intuitive understanding of what love is. But the clear statement of the Scripture, based on this verse and several others, is that Mankind cannot, does not, cannot, and will not be able to know what love is experientially. Now, that may come as a surprise to some of you because you uh, think you know what love is. But the Scripture says that it, the only way we know what love is is to start with the cross. 
I don't think I can stress this point enough or repeat it enough or pound it into you enough because the message that we receive again and again and again and again ad nauseum through the media, through newspaper articles, through cartoons, through fiction, through movies, television, modern psychology, Dr. Phil, if you like watching Oprah, Whatever the medium is, the message that we get day in, day out, hour after hour after hour, is that we know inherently and intuitively what love is. Maybe you base it on the way your parents treated you. Maybe you base it on some kind of experience that you've had. And for most of us, we've had some sort of uh, subjective experience, some sort of encounter with various emotions which are so real and so powerful and so enjoyable that we define that as love. And so when we talk to people, we think we all know what love is because we've had this common uh, experience. But the Scripture says we don't know what love is. It is by this, that is by looking at the cross, by understanding what Jesus Christ did on the cross, that we know what love is. Mankind, the Scripture is saying, cannot know love any other way. Whatever your concept of love is, it is in some way false. It's missing something. It is skewed. It is distorted. Because the only way to know what real love is, is to look at the archetype of love, which is Jesus Christ. The idea that we often think of as love is so inculcated into us by the world and by the culture around us, by human viewpoint thinking, by the satanic cosmic system, to put it in John's terminology, that that becomes the grid, that's, that, that becomes the framework or the frame of reference, the foundation for evaluating everything we think of when the term love is introduced. When, when you get involved in a situation and somebody says, I love you, the frame of reference that you're using to evaluate and to define the concept of love is your own experience, your own emotion, your own subjectivity, your own background, rather than the cross. And what Scripture is saying is unless we have a concept of love that starts and is defined foundationally by the cross, then our concept of love is going to be missing something. Now, the impact of that is that when you get involved in some sort of romantic relationship and you have a skewed view of love, then you're going to have an inadequate basis for that relationship. That's just one application. As Christians, we have to recognize that one of the goals of the Christian way of life is to completely overhaul our thinking, not just patch it up, not just put new wallpaper on, not just paint it differently, but we have to tear it down, tear down the walls, pull, bring in a bulldozer, get rid of the foundation, and start all over again. That means that every concept we have in life, this is one of the hard things about, about the Christian life, is that by the time we start getting serious about Christianity, by the time we start getting serious about doctrine, we already have a lot of set opinions. We have a lot of comfortable views about life, about politics, about law, about relationships, about marriage, family, whatever it is in life, by the time most of us got serious about the Word, we already had our own opinions. Now we have to go about the hard task of tearing everything down and starting over again because the starting point has to be 
the Word of God. So we have to overhaul our thinking and replace all those human viewpoint concepts of love which have more to do with emotion and sentimentality and how we feel about somebody than with the divine viewpoint concepts of love which are based on knowledge, which are based on thinking, and completely eliminate emotion and sentimentality. That just runs counter to everything we've been taught and everything that that we picked up from our culture. Divine viewpoint love is expressed in the scripture is based on thinking. It's based on character. It's based on understanding what Christian integrity is all about as exemplified in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Therefore, we have to recognize that love that we're talking about is a love that cannot be produced on our own, but can only be produced by God the Holy Spirit working in conjunction with the Word of God. The phrase by this means that we need to put our attention, we need to put the spotlight on the cross. Jesus Christ is the prototype. He is the archetype. He is the model. He is the exemplar. He is the focus of what it means to love. If you want to talk about love, you have to start at the cross, and you have to completely understand everything that God did for us and the nature of the atonement. Now, the point that underlies all this is that I keep emphasizing again and again is that as Christians, we need to recognize the necessity of using the Scripture as our starting point for every category of thinking in life, not just the so-called religious stuff. See, that's what the human viewpoint says is that that we, we, we live in a society where religion is fragmented off and compartmentalized off into one section of life so that you can have... Uh, uh, people like Senator Kennedy stand up as he's evaluating John Ashcroft and his nomination for uh, Attorney General last year, and say, "Well, are you going to let your uh, your religious views affect your, uh, your your the decisions you make as the Attorney General?" See, for Kennedy, obviously his religion has no impact on reality, so he can ask that question. But a religion that has no impact on reality is is a fraudulent religion. You don't want somebody whose religious beliefs don't affect. See, the problem is you have people who have a superficial religious belief, but it doesn't mean anything because that's not their real religious belief. You have too many people who are just secular Protestants or secular Catholics or secular Jews or even secular Muslims, and the religious teaching that they claim to adhere to has little impact on their day-to-day life. But as Christians who are serious about the Word of God, we realize that we can't fragment our thought that way. We can't compartmentalize life. That The Scripture is designed to teach us how to think and how to live in every arena of life, how to address uh, thought in every arena of intellection, every realm of human endeavor. Therefore, that we recognize that the Bible teaches us principles about law, teaches us principles about freedom, the military, war, peace, family, marriage, relationships in general, problem solving, that all of these areas are addressed by Scripture. Every area of human thought and activity is at some level addressed by Scripture. The Scripture at least provides a foundation and a framework, sets the boundaries for thought. Now, the problem that you run into sometimes with some uh, people with certain personality types who are extremely creative is that they really uh, chafe at what the Scripture says because, see, part of the cre- creative process, I think, is a process that sort of uh, rejects uh, 
uh, previous uh, patterns and previous standards and somebody who wants to uh, think outside the box. But the Scripture is going to provide a certain box within which genuine creativity and genuine thought is to take place. So we have to learn to think more profoundly and more deeply about what the Scripture says in every area of life, from economics to political theory, from social problems, including poverty and welfare, uh, single-parent homes, education, crime, uh, criminality, how to deal with criminals, taxes, time management. Nothing escapes the Word of God. The Bible has something to say about everything. This was the ultimate belief system of the Puritans and Puritan theology, and I'm not using that in a negative or legalistic way, uh, of the thinking that formed the founders, uh, those who founded this country, and those who originally came here in the 17th and 18th century, is they believed the Word of God addressed every issue of life, and so they tried to, uh, uh, though they made mistakes, they tried to uh, establish a society in which all of the all of the structures were based upon uh, significant thought and significant developments from the Word of God. This is why for the believer, doctrine must be number one. That's part of our job as believers is to take every thought captive for Jesus Christ. That doesn't just mean don't think impure thoughts. That means every thought. That means when you're thinking about literature, when you're thinking about writing, when you're thinking about law, when you're thinking about politics, when you're thinking about athletics, whatever it is that you're thinking about, the Word of God is going to provide certain absolutes that that provide a framework. And that's one of the real challenges, and to me one of the exciting things about being a believer is that that there's so much uncharted territory there. There are people who have addressed some of these areas, and, and there's a tr- tremendous amount that needs to be done in terms of applying that principle from Second Corinthians to take every thought captive for Christ. But no area, perhaps, is quite as fundamental as the area of love because it, it affects our relationships as, as in marriages, our relationships as parents, our relationships as children. Love, in fact, weaves itself into every aspect of our life. So John starts off here, by this we know, and the by this puts the spotlight and focuses it right on the cross. He says, by this we know something. We we learned it in the past with results that go on into the present. It indicates that as believers we can have absolute knowledge about something. You can know with certainty what love is. Now the world is going to say that if you think you know what love is, then you're arrogant, that you're conceited, that you're somehow, uh, uh, who, who are you to think that, that you know what love is? What about all of these other people that you can watch on television or books that you can read in the self-improvement section at Barnes & Noble? They have wonderful ideas about what love is. Who are you to exclude all of them? But you see, Christianity is exclusivistic. From the starting point of salvation, it says there is only one way that people can get to heaven. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. Broad is the way of destruction, but narrow is the way of life. There is only one way, the Scripture says, and we have to not adapt Scripture to our thinking and our opinions, but we have to 
learn to think as God thinks. He's the creator who made everything the way it is, so we have to adapt our thinking to his absolutes. And that's the entire process of the Christian life. So when it comes to love, we have a lot of work to do. And we have seen a couple of principles that we'll just briefly review. First of all, we saw that love in this context of First John becomes a summary for John, a summary description of the character of the mature believer. The immature believer, the baby believer, hasn't developed the capacity to love yet. He's in the process of just learning foundational uh, doctrines of Scripture. He's trying to understand the doctrine of inspiration, that all Scripture is breathed out by God, that it is not of human origin, but it is of divine origin. He's trying to understand basic concepts of the Trinity that God exists eternally as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that there never was a time when God the Son, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, did not exist. There never was a time when the Holy Spirit did not exist. They are eternally righteous. They are eternally just. They are eternally loved. They each have the same knowledge. They each have the same power and ability. They are identical in essence, but three in personality, distinct in personality. Now, that doesn't mean that we can truly comprehend everything that that means, but we can understand that that is a foundational truth. And it has many implications, which I have covered in previous studies on the Trinity. So an immature believer is too busy trying to understand just the realities of his salvation, going back to understand uh, what reconciliation means, what redemption means, what propitiation means, all of the basics related to salvation. The uh, baby believer is trying to, to figure out what the promises of God are and what they mean. So the baby believer is learning these foundational things, and it is not until he has those things in place and is beginning to apply uh, basic principles of the faith rest realm, basic promises, that he begins to advance in his character enough, and the Holy Spirit begins to produce uh, this kind of love in his life. Second principle we've learned is that this love is a product of the Holy Spirit. It is not something we can manufacture on our own. It is a result of abiding in Christ, John chapter 15, in connection with Galatians 5, 16 to 25. Love is a product of the Holy Spirit. It is listed first among the fruits of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22 to 23. And the third thing that we have seen here is that love is connected to integrity. So the conclusion is that love apart from integrity is meaningless. If you are here this morning as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and somebody tells you that they love you, the significance of that statement is directly related to the level of integrity in their soul. If they don't have any integrity, then that statement is meaningless. All that means is that they're having some real warm, fuzzy feelings about you or they're lusting for you one or the other. But when a person has integrity, and remember, real integrity can only come as a product of God the Holy Spirit working in the life of the believer. When you have a mature believer who expresses love, then that love means something because it is grounded on personal integrity. And ultimately, that's the only thing that is going to provide the kind of foundation that is going to keep a marriage rock solid through the tough times. That's the only kind of 
love that is going to keep any relationship together through difficult times because it is, is a love that is not based on circumstance, not based on feelings. It's a love that is not based on uh, health or the vagaries of prosperity, but it is love that is based on the absolute character of God. So John says, by this, the focus on the cross... We know, we've learned this in the past with the result that we continue knowing it. We know love. Love is the object of the verb. We know what love is. And then I'm using a New King James. It translates the next phrase, because uh, he laid down his life for us. The New American Standard, which I've got on the board, says that he laid down his life for us. And in both cases, I think it's a mistake to translate either at that or because. We know love by this. And what we have here in the Greek is the, the uh, particle hati, which is used in, usually it means because, but it is also used to set apart both direct and indirect quotation. See, in the original Greek, you don't have uh, quotation marks. They didn't use quotation marks like we do in English. You know, if we're going to say something, uh, quote somebody, we'll say, John said, comma, quote. But in Greek, what you would say is, John said, and then you, instead of comma, quote, you would have hati there. Now, you don't translate the hati. See, that's just a signal that you're either giving a direct quote or an indirect quote. At other times, when you're stating a principle, we know something. And then following the word something, you'll have a colon in English, and then you'll have the content of what you know. And that's how this should be translated. We know love by this colon, because the statement that follows the hot tea explains the this. It's the principle that helps us know what love is. We know love by this. He laid down his life for us. That is in a nutshell, is how we know what love is. Apart from that, John is saying we don't know what real love is all about. We may have ideas. We may have uh, suggestions. We may get uh, glimpses here and there. But apart from the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we don't know what love is. So this is expressing a universal principle here as to how the believer comes to know what love is. So let's take a look at this phrase. He laid down his life for us. The verb laid down is the aorist active indicative of the verb tithemi, which means to set aside, to lay aside, to put something away, or to give something up. Is the idea that he gave up, he laid aside his life for us. The Word here for life is not the word zoe, which refers to the principle of life, or the word bios, which we'll see in a couple of verses, which has to do with the means or manner of life, but it is the word suke for soul, which often stands for life, but it is focusing on the immaterial aspect and not the physical aspect, reminding us once again that it is not the physical death of Jesus Christ on the cross that paid the penalty for our sins, but it is his spiritual death on the cross. And the reason for that is that the penalty for sin is spiritual death. In Genesis chapter 2, 
Verse 17, God warned Adam that on the day that he ate from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would certainly die. And there we have an emphatic statement in the Hebrew of a, a cal perfect verb plus a cal infinitive construct, which is used for emphasis. And it was the certainty uh, of death. Now, what kind of death was it? Well, since Adam lived to be 900 and something years old, we know that it wasn't physical death. What happened on the day that he ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge was that he became separated from God. As soon as God came to walk in the Garden of Eden, and we know that that was not uh, God the Father walking in the Garden of Eden. How do we know that? John 1.18 says that no man has seen the Father at any time, but it is the Son who has explained or exegeted him. So we know from that passage and others that every appearance of God in the Old Testament was not God the Father, but was the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. So at the instant of his spiritual death, when the pre-incarnate God the Son came to walk in the garden with them, what happened? Adam and Eve ran and hid. They were afraid. They no longer could relate to God. They no longer had an ability to relate to God. And that is because what happened was spiritual death. The human, every human being is, uh, or Adam was created originally with three parts. It's called trichotomy. He had a body plus a soul made up of consciousness, self-consciousness, mentality, uh, volition, and conscience. And he had something called a human spirit. Now, the human spirit and the soul work together uh, in order to enable the individ- any individual to have a relationship with God and to understand spiritual truth. What happened in spiritual death is that the, in Adam, the human spirit became inoperative. For us, the human spirit is not there at all when we are born. This is why the unbelievers we studied in the first hour cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God because they are spiritually discerned. He has to be regenerate. He has to put his faith alone in Christ alone. And at that instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Holy Spirit creates and simultaneously imparts to him a human spirit. And once Again, that individual is able to have a relationship to God. Or in the case of Adam, once again, he's able to have a relationship with God. So, in spiritual death, uh, Adam was unable to have a relationship with God, but when he put his faith alone in the promise of future regeneration, then the promise of future salvation, as explained in Genesis 3.15, at that point, Adam was regenerate. He received a human spirit and he could um, have a relationship with God. So since the penalty is the spiritual death, the penalty Jesus Christ had to pay on the cross was also a spiritual death. It is a substitutionary spiritual death. And this is brought out in the next phrase in the Greek. It is that he laid down his life. It is a uh, consummative aorist tense of the verb, and the emphasis is on the completion or the conclusion of the action or state. It's looking on the fact that this was a completed action in the past. Jesus laid down 
his life, that is, his soul, for us. And there we have the prepositional phrase. In the Greek, it is huper plus the genitive. Huper plus the genitive. H-U-P-E-R. This is a rough breathing mark, which is usually transliterated with an H. And huper is a preposition which literally means over, but is used to indicate substitution, instead of, in the place of, that he laid down his life in our place. So it is a spirit, it is a substitutionary spiritual death. His separation, his judicial separation from God the Father on the cross is the complete and total payment of the sin penalty for every human being in human history. And therefore, since sin was paid for completely at the cross, the issue is no longer your sins, your failures, uh, your disappointments. It's not about you anymore. It's about Jesus Christ. The issue is whether or not you are willing to trust in him alone, to accept his payment in your place. That is the gospel, that you don't have to worry about working your way to heaven. You don't have to worry about earning your way to heaven. You don't have to worry about engaging in a certain uh, unknown amount of ritual in order to somehow get enough brownie points with God that you will uh, get into heaven. It is about understanding that Jesus Christ did everything that was necessary on the cross, and so it's not up to you, it's up to him. Since it's not up to you and salvation is not based on what you do, you can never lose it once you give it, gain it. It is a free gift. So let's just briefly review the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Point number one, man is a sinner. Every human being is born a sinner. He is born with a sin nature, and he is born spiritually dead and incapable of saving himself. Scripture says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Ephesians 2.1, we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. Point number two, God in his omniscience knows all the knowable. That's what omniscience means. From eternity past, when there it was no time, no before, no after, from eternity past, billions and billions of years ago, God in his omniscience knows all the knowable. He knows all the actual and all the possible. He knows what would have happened if you had decided when you were 25 years old to move to California instead of staying in New England. He knows every decision that you could have possibly made and what its consequences would have been. But he knows the decisions that you actually make and the decisions that you will actually make in history. And because he knows all of the actual, God is able to make a provision for everything that will take place in human history. God is not taken by surprise. In his omniscience, he doesn't increase or decrease in knowledge. God doesn't learn anything. There is nothing that happens in human history that is new to God, that is a surprise to God. That means that in eternity past, God could design a perfect, comprehensive, complete, and sufficient plan for man's salvation. That's all point number two. God in his omniscience knows all the knowable, and therefore he could design a perfect plan of salvation. Point number three. That plan involved all three members of the Trinity. It involves God the Father as the planner or architect of the plan. 
It involves God the Son as the one who carried out the plan. And it involves God the Holy Spirit as the one who reveals the plan. So all three members of the Trinity are involved and each has a particular role to play. Remember in the doctrine of the Trinity, God exists eternally as three distinct persons, yet with one identical essence. They are all equally sovereign, equally righteous, equally just, equally love, equally eternal. They all have the same knowledge, the same power. They're equally omniscient, omnipotent, and they are each omnipresent. They None of them changes. They are all the same. Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today, and forever. That verse, by the way, that we often quote in terms of his uh, immutability, Jesus Christ the same yesterday and today and forever, indicates that he must be eternally God because if he is God today, and he can't change, then he must be fully God throughout all of eternity. So the next time your Jehovah's Witness neighbor knocks on your door, there's a new verse for you to pull out to challenge them with. Fourth point, Jesus Christ is eternally God. There never was a time when Jesus Christ did not exist, and as such, Jesus Christ possesses all the attributes of God. That means he he possesses the perfect righteousness and integrity of God. That means he has the same love that God the Father has. We see this in a number of passages. For example, in um, Colossians 2.9 we read, For in him, that is in Jesus Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. This is a claim that in Jesus Christ is every attribute of deity which includes eternality, and it dwells in him in bodily form. Another uh, verse that we could go to is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. There we, we read the command, have this attitude, actually it means have this thinking in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, verse 6, who, although he existed past tense, aorist tense, indicating his eternality, he existed in the form of God. And there in the Greek we have the, the Greek word morphe, which indicates essence. It is a word that is borrowed from Greek philosophy, and it is not talking about the external shape of something, but it is talking about the internal essence of something. This is a key idea in uh, the thought of Plato. And he used this word to express that that essence of a thing, the idea of a thing that was the same, and that gives people the ability to talk about a chair. If I talk about a chair, you have the same, some idea of a chair, and your idea of a chair and my idea of a chair include an, an essential idea that's the same, and that's the morphe, the essence of something. So this verse says that he existed in the form, or that is the essence of God, but he did not regard equality with God something to be something to be held on to, something to be grasped. And the idea here is that unlike Adam, there's a contrast between Jesus Christ, who's called the second Adam, and Adam, the first Adam. There's a contrast between the second Adam and the first Adam that Adam wanted to be like God. Remember the, the lie of Satan in the garden was if you eat of the fruit, you'll be like God. And see, the point that Paul is making here is that unlike the first Adam, Jesus Christ was not willing to hold on to his privileges and prerogatives as deity uh, 
but instead emptied himself. Now, that word is a debated word, a well-known word. It's kanao, which means he willingly limited himself. He limited himself, taking on the form, and this is a different word. It's the word schema, which means external form. He took on the external form of a bondservant and was found in the likeness. That's talking about the physical form and function of man. Here we have an expression of what we call the hypostatic union, that Jesus is undiminished deity united with true humanity at the incarnation. But Jesus did not come into existence on that first Christmas morning when he was born to the Virgin Mary. He came into existence. He always was in existence. That's the point of John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and John is very careful in his word selection there, and he uses the imperfect tense of the verb amy, and the imperfect tense means continuous action in past time. So in John 1.1, when John says, in the beginning... He's talking about a particular point in time, the beginning of creation. He says, in the beginning, and the word in the beginning, that phrase would immediately say something to his uh, to his hearers and remind them of the first phrase in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So he's going back to that initial creation point when God created the space-time continuum, when he first created the universe, uh, and he goes back to that initial point, and he says, at that point in time, Jesus Christ already was. Imperfect tense means continuous existence in past time. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So there he says, the Word equals God. And then in verse 14, John says, And the Word became flesh. This is the incarnation that took place uh, when Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, uh, became incarnate at the birth in Bethlehem in the manger. So that refers to the incarnation. And what happens at the incarnation is the eternal deity of the second person of the Trinity takes on human flesh, a human body, so that you have the linkage of undiminished deity. See, just because he becomes a man, his deity is not diminished. If it was, he wouldn't be God anymore. He is still God, but he willingly limits the use of his divine attributes. Not all of the time, because there were times when Jesus did things out of his deity and his own divine power, when he changed the water into wine. He did that to demonstrate that he was God, and just as the creator God created everything out of nothing, he had that same power. He was equally God. So he is undiminished deity and true humanity. He is not distorted, fallen humanity. He is born uh, in without sin because of the virgin birth. There was no uh, inherited sin nature. There was no imputation of Adam's original sin. There is no personal sin. He is true humanity. He is not distorted, warped, or perverted by the sin nature. 
So in Philippians 2.7, we have the statement, he emptied himself. That means he willingly limited his use of divine attributes. That means he was completely subordinate to the will of the Father. He was not going to use his divine attributes to save himself. This is what the issue was in the temptation in Matthew chapter 4, is that uh, Satan was trying to tempt the Lord to use his divine attributes to save himself apart from the plan of God. And instead, Jesus demonstrated complete reliance upon the Father and upon God the Holy Spirit and resisted the uh, testing of Satan. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of a man, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is the picture of the kind of love that must undergird everything in our life is his willingness to go to the cross and there to die as our substitute. So that's all under point number four, that Jesus Christ is eternally God, and as such he possessed all the attributes of God. Point number five, as the eternal second person of the Trinity, the pre-incarnate Jesus had perfect righteousness. He had perfect righteousness. That means he has perfect integrity, which goes along with his eternal love. Point number six, as the incarnate God-man after the incarnation. He is undiminished deity and true humanity united together in one person. That means he is born perfect without a sin nature. So point five has to do with the fact that as in his pre-incarnate state, he possesses perfect righteousness. Point number six, at the incarnation, he does not inherit a sin nature, so he is incarnate perfect. And point number seven, Jesus Christ lived a sinless life, which qualified him to go to the cross. So you see what undergirds the act of love, his demonstration of love at the cross, is his integrity. Love to be loved must be undergirded by integrity and righteousness. This is why, the reason I'm emphasizing that is we have to keep, keep reminding ourselves of the context of 1 John. 1 John 2.29, he introduces this section by saying, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And in 1 John 3.3, he says, everyone who has his hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. So there is this intertwining of the idea of righteousness in this passage with the uh, command to love. And all of that functions as a result of abiding or staying in fellowship, abiding in Christ. So point uh, point five emphasizes the pre-incarnate righteousness of Jesus Christ. Point six emphasizes the he has perfect righteousness at at, at, at his birth. And point seven that it is that perfect righteousness and his sinless life that qualifies him to go to the cross. Point number eight, at the cross, the sinless or impeccable, that's the technical term, impeccable, meaning without sin, at the cross, the sinless or impeccable God-man received the imputation of all human sins and bore our punishment. 2 Corinthians 5.21 states, He made him, that is, the first he is God the Father, 
God the Father made him God the Son, who knew no sin, that means he was impeccable, he was sinless, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What happens is this. Here we are, down here with minus R, we lack righteousness. Oh, we have our moments when we're good and when we think we're good. We know we're good, especially when we compare ourselves to somebody else. But when we compare ourselves with the absolute standard of God's perfect righteousness, we fall short. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus Christ went to the cross, and he had perfect righteousness. But God took our sins and judicially charged them to his account, to Jesus Christ's account on the cross. This is the idea behind spiritual substitution. He died in our place. He pays the penalty for us so that we don't have to pay it. Now, the problem is that as unbelievers, we all possess minus R. No one can have fellowship with God unless they possess his perfect righteousness. So while the sin penalty is paid, we still have a problem. And that is that you don't have perfect righteousness. You can't meet the standard of God. That is the issue of faith, belief, trusting in Christ alone for salvation. At the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ And just as he judicially imputed our sins to Christ on the cross, he judicially imputes the perfect righteousness of Christ to us. So that when God's perfect righteousness looks at us, he doesn't look at our sins, they're paid for. He looks at the present possession of the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. When he sees that we possess that, he, as a judge on the bench, He declares us to be righteous or just. That is what the term justification means. We are justified by faith alone. We are still sinners. We still sin and will continue to sin, and we still possess a sin nature. But every sin was paid for on the cross, and it is on the basis of his righteousness that we are saved. Therefore... Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. See, that's the imputation of God's perfect righteousness. This is just a part, just a small microcosm of all that Jesus Christ does for us at the cross. This is what is called substitutionary Atonement. So John says in 1 John 3.16, By this we know love. He laid down his life as a substitute for us. Now that's the doctrine. That's what we have got to understand if we're going to get to the application. Now the application is the next sentence. The application is where it gets difficult. The application is where Christians usually fail. The application is, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. It is a completely parallel statement. He says, we also ought, and it is a subjunctive mood verb, which indicates potential. 
and indicates the possibility that we might not. It indicates the fact that it's up to our volition whether or not we are going to apply the principle. We may or may not lay down our lives for the brethren, but we ought to. And the verb here translated ought to is the verb athalema, which means obligation. There is an obligation. Now, sometimes when I have taught this, I've gotten the reaction from people who haven't thought very profoundly that obligation is legalism. Obligation is not legalism. Let me give you an example. If somebody gives you a brand new 2002 uh, Jaguar SR12, now, it's yours. Your name's on the title. They can't take it back. If they did, they could take it to court and it would be stealing. It's yours. Now, you have an obligation to take care of that fine automobile. You have an obligation to put gas in it so it'll run, to keep air in the tires, to change the oil on a regular basis and go down and have a regular tune-ups uh, that's going to cost you an arm and a leg, but... If you want to keep that thing running, you're, you're under obligation to take care of it. If you do not fulfill your obligation, it's still yours. But it's not going to do you any good because if you don't change the oil, you'll burn up the engine. Or if you don't keep air in the tires, you'll have a flat and have to leave it on the side of the road and somebody will steal it. But that car is still yours. That's the way it is with the spiritual life. The point of salvation, that spiritual life is yours. It's got your name on it. You can never lose it. God's not going to take it away from you. But if we fail in our obligation to learn doctrine, to walk by means of the Spirit, to abide in Christ, then that spiritual life isn't going to be of any value to us. We'll be the walking dead. We will be uh, 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 in carnal death or temporal death, as Paul says in in Romans 6.23. And as John says here, it's the opposite of having life. That's why John, when John emphasizes eternal life in this passage, he's not talking about uh, everlasting life that we receive at salvation, but he's talking about the quality of life, and that will come into play in a few more verses. He's talking about the quality of that life that we have as abiding believers, as believers walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. So we have an obligation to apply the principle of this impersonal love, and that extends to sacrifice. So that means we have to stop and evaluate the kind of characteristics that are demonstrated by Jesus Christ on the cross. So I've outlined eight characteristics that we need to focus on. That When you think about love, you need to think about this. Romans 5, 8, we're told God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died as a substitute for us. What are the characteristics of that demonstration of God's love? Now, I don't want you to be thinking. I know some of you are already doing this. You're thinking, well, I know so-and-so. They better be listening. Let's see if they can figure out whether or not they love me. Now, what you need to be figuring out is whether or not this is impacting your own soul, not somebody else's. I always have to give that little warning because we don't like to think in terms of personal application. Point number one, it's initiating. God took the initiative in eternity past. He didn't wait for some kind of positive response on our part. Uh, Romans 5.8 said God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were still sinners. Did not say 
uh, once we were improving ourselves, as we were getting better, as we demonstrated that we would be uh, likable or lovable. No, he said that while we were still completely and totally obnoxious and in rebellion toward God, he demonstrated his love toward us. That means it doesn't have anything. Real love has nothing to do with the object of love. doesn't have to do with how skinny they are or how fat they are. doesn't have to do with how healthy. That's why in a marriage vow it says that uh, in prosperity and adversity, it says in, 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 in sickness and in health. See, most people never hear the negatives. They just hear the health and the prosperity and the and the good times. They never hear the negative side of what you say in, in the vows, except you've got to have a love that is going to last when six months after the wedding there's an automobile accident and your partner's paralyzed from the waist down. You know, those are the hard things, and they happen in life. But what makes that work is only if there is integrity on the part of the people who are loving. See, if there's no integrity there, then when you stand up there and make those vows, it doesn't mean anything. It's just words. So we have to look at the Scripture. That's the only foundation for having the kind of love that gets us through the good times and the bad times. It's initiating. God took God's love began billions and billions of years ago in eternity past, and he made a decision that no matter what it cost, he would provide salvation for mankind. Secondly, it's aggressive. It's aggressive. It doesn't sit back in the corner waiting for the other person to take action and to do something. It asserts itself with confidence and boldness. It doesn't operate from a position of weakness trying to curry favor or generate approbation. It is initiating. It is aggressive. It seeks to solve the problem and provide solutions. It is humble. This is what we saw in Philippians chapter 2. That means it focuses not on personal glory, personal feelings of uh, approbation, personal feelings of, of well-being, but it seeks what is uh, right from an absolute framework and what is best for the object of love. Jesus Christ took on the attitude of a servant to do whatever was necessary. That included the incarnation. That included... Uh, the sacrifice on the cross, and that included receiving the undeserved imputation of human sin. Remember, the suffering Christ encountered when he bore our sin on the cross was worse than anything that we can ever imagine. It was a billion times greater than any human suffering or all human suffering combined. And yet he was willing to humble himself to the point of death. Fourth, it's intense. The kind of love that God demonstrated is an intense love. It is a zealous determination to achieve its goal despite all obstacles. It is not going to let uh, a problem, a difficulty, an obstacle uh, stop it. There is an intensity to it. Fifth characteristic, it is steadfastly loyal. This is the concept in the Old Testament word hesed. It is steadfastly loyal. It is loyal to an absolute. God is loyal to his promises to man and strongly desires all men to come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he does not reject or condemn man at the moment of sin. God is always loyal 
and faithful to his promises. The sixth characteristic is it is a consecrated love, a consecrated love. The word consecration means to be set apart. And in that, Jesus Christ set himself apart for the purpose of achieving salvation. He set himself apart to that purpose of uh, exhibiting his love for us. And as such, he is loyal. That's another idea in concentration. Consecration is loyalty. Seventh, it's the idea of dedication. Jesus Christ dedicated or committed himself to the task of going to the cross and serving mankind. And eighth, it is devoted. And by devoted, I mean to give or apply oneself entirely to a particular activity, cause, or person. So we have eight words. Now, this is not uh, by any means a comprehensive uh, understanding or definition of love, but it is eight specific characteristics that we can discover in looking at the cross. God's love initiates. It's aggressive. It's humble. It's intense. It demonstrates steadfast loyalty. It's consecrated. It is dedicated, and it is devoted. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this time to study your word, particularly to focus on your love as exhibited at the cross. Father, we thank you that uh, we have a salvation that is not based on who we are or what we do, but it's based on who you are and what Jesus Christ did on the cross. Father, at this time, we give the option of salvation to anyone here who is uncertain of their eternal destiny or unsure of their eternal life. Right now, right where you sit, you can have certainty of your eternal destiny. You don't need to join a church. You don't need to engage in ritual. All you need to do is put your faith alone in Christ alone. Christ did everything. He paid the complete price. He died as your spiritual substitute on the cross. So the issue now is whether or not you are going to accept that, whether or not you are going to trust or rely exclusively on Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today, recognizing that we have been given a new commandment to love one another as Christ loved the church. This is not an option, but this is the the unique mark of the church age believer, that we demonstrate the same love in our lives. It cannot be done on our own, but it can only be done through a study of your word and its application in our lives under the filling of God the Holy Spirit. We pray that you would challenge us with the things we study today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.